Thanks for tuning into the XL Legal Podcast, an interview-based podcast for lawyers devoted to practice excellence and wellness tips. I'm your host, Shelley Appleby-Ostroff, legal talent development consultant, writing coach, and former practicing lawyer. And I'm so happy you're here. Today, I'm really looking forward to speaking with Laura Genovich about writing clear contracts and her new book about legal writing. Welcome to the XL Legal Podcast, Laura. Thanks so much for having me, Shelley. Well, thanks so much for being here. How about getting us started by introducing yourself? Well, sure. Uh, my name is Laura Genovich. I practice law in a mid-sized firm in West Michigan, and I focus my practice on municipal law, appeals, and bankruptcy law. And I've always had a, a passion for writing and specifically clear legal writing. So I've spent a lot of time during my career mentoring other attorneys, teaching legal writing as an adjunct professor, and more recently sharing some of those tips on LinkedIn, where I've got connected with a lot of other great attorneys and other plain language enthusiasts. So that's now a fun part of my practice as well. I love how you describe it as fun. I don't think it a is. Lot of people, <laughs> I don't think a lot of people would describe legal writing as fun. So very refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy it. Yeah. So let's just sort of jump into your book. And I'm wondering what inspired you to write it? Well, I've been, as I said, sharing a lot of um, my ideas and thoughts about queer writing on LinkedIn. And it got to a point where I had quite a few tips compiled. And within our firm, like many firms, we're always bringing in newer associates and summer associates. And I wanted a good way to share those tips with them. So I started compiling them and realized it would be pretty easy to share that product with others as well. So I sort of tested um, the book last summer with our summer associates and then refined it and wound up releasing it here just in the last few weeks on Amazon and shared it on LinkedIn. And I've been um, really excited to get a positive response from people. Fantastic. And I have to say, I read it like in one sitting and it's so, first of all, easy to read and the tips are so accessible and memorable. Um, yeah, I really encourage everybody to read it because uh, there's so much packed into a very short book. How many pages is it? 82 pages, I think it is. And thank you for the kind words. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, wonderful, wonderful. But I'm wondering too, like there's so many books out there, so many books about legal writing. So is there something that distinguishes this book from others? Yeah, I think you hit on it when you said you sat and read it in one sitting. Um, it's designed to be read quickly, frankly, um, and to sort of get the point across quickly, because I know I love reading books by the very well-known clear legal writers who are out there. And often those are an investment of time that you really need to put in and study a lot of it. So the idea for this was to impart the information in a way that would be quick and memorable so that busy attorneys can immediately apply it to their writing. Fantastic. Well, I definitely achieved that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about the title. How did you come up with that title? Sure. Well, I wanted to keep it at the essentials, which is plain writing or clear legal writing. And I called it the plain language practice because I really think as attorneys, we need to apply these principles to all parts of our practice, not just writing contracts, but also in our client communications, in our writing within the firm, as litigators in our briefs, that um, these core principles apply to all of those areas of communication. So it's really Part of the entire practice and not just a skill that we pull out for complicated contracts. Yeah, I think that's such an important message to get across. Um, because I think people have this idea of 
plain language writing and it's only something that comes into play, like you say, when you're writing a pleading or um, a document for the court, um, not thinking about emails, client correspondence, um, and of course, contracts. So uh, yeah, yeah, really, really like that idea. And just wanted to check in with you to see how you define plain language. I define plain language as language that is easy for the reader to understand. And your reader will be different, right? The way that we write, the plain language principles might be the same, but the way that we write obviously depends on who our audience is. So what we write to the court may look different than what we write to a client, which may look different than how we're drafting a rulemaking or a contract document. But ultimately, the goal is for the reader to be able to understand and process it the first time. If the reader has to go back and read a provision, and we've all been there, where we're reading a contract and we have to go back and read it several times, sometimes pulling out different color highlighters to figure out what it means. To me, that's not plain language. It doesn't mean dumbing it down. It doesn't mean eliminating um, important content. Um, To the contrary, I think it's harder to write in plain language, but we want it to be the easiest for our reader. Yeah. And so I guess design elements come into play as well. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I was working on something for a client earlier today. In my first draft, I had something in a narrative form. And there was a lot of detailed information, names, dates, uh, numbers, and things like that. And I decided to scrap the paragraph and just kind of make little headings with the information so that the reader could very quickly glance at it and see, okay, in this deal, we've got this information with this deal, there's this information so that they didn't have to try to make their own notes about it. And so I think document design is very much a part of that. Again, in all of our types of writing, I think it's important to keep that in mind when writing briefs. Um, I filed a brief recently where I, I made a timeline where I said, you know, in some cases, dates matter, and this is one of them. And here are the important dates because it dealt with filing deadlines and timing issues and things like that. So rather than bunching that together in a long paragraph, it's more user-friendly then for the judge and the law clerk to already have that timeline prepared for them. Oh, yes. And that, I mean, we'll talk about your pet peeves, but one of my pet peeves (laughs) is where we see so many dates, particularly at the beginning of paragraphs, on or about such and such date, on about this date. So having that visual that can be so incredibly helpful. And right away, it just identifies what's the most important date. And then, yeah. And we only should put dates in there if the dates matter. That's the other takeaway there, right? If there's no dispute about, or if it's not material when things happen, then let's leave the dates out altogether. Yeah. But I think that's just sort of one of those things that maybe as um, people use precedence, they see that someone has done that that way in the past. So particularly a new lawyer coming in and saying, oh, well, you know, maybe that's what I should be doing. I'm glad you mentioned that because, and I touch on this a bit in the book, but especially for new lawyers, we do look at those old documents or new lawyers look at what senior attorneys in their firm or their um, corporate office have done before. And that's understandable. And that's good, right? We don't want everyone reinventing the wheel. We don't want brand new lawyers reinventing the wheel. But where you have the ability to improve on that is where I encourage new lawyers to kind of take agency and say, I know plain writing, and I know that this is not something that's essential to the meaning of this. I know that this is wording that we can probably tighten up and to start doing that to the extent that they can. That doesn't mean 
go into a firm and rewrite all of their estate planning documents in your first week. Uh, <laughs> but where you're where you're in charge of your communications, even in emails, even in research memos, to build up those skills and exercise those muscles in plain writing, that's something that new lawyers definitely can do. Yeah, I think, again, that is so important. And I think it highlights something that I have seen is missing both in law students and junior associates is that ability to sort of think critically about a new matter. It's like, all of a sudden, I'm tasked with writing a notice of motion, let's say, well, on my first reactions, I'm going to find something that's been done before. And, you know, it was successful. So I guess I can just use that, take out um, you know, the names and replace them with the new names. But uh, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Talk about pet peeves. That's another pet peeve. Oh, <laughs> it's very, it's very common and it's very understandable. But I think you're exactly right that there has to be that level of critical thinking. And part of that comes to, we are problem solvers. So what problem are we solving here? What does this client need to have happen? And how does this document get us there? So there might be a form that worked for this other client in this situation, but the objectives here might be different and, and reading it. And I think what can happen is a newer lawyer will read something in a form or a template document and not understand what it means. So they just keep it in because they think it must mean something very important and I had best not mess with it. And what I would um, encourage those attorneys to do is figure out what it means and figure out if it is something that you need in this document rather than just relying wholesale on something that was done for a different client in a different situation. So again, not necessarily starting from scratch, but as you say, thinking critically about what we need to do for this client and how we get them there. Because at the end of the day, that's that's what we're here to do, right? It's not not to write academic papers, but to help our clients solve real problems. Absolutely. And to actually understand the words of even a contract. And I think that's like an area that's kind of frightening for a lot of new lawyers, <laughs> right? Because oh. all that language seems, a lot of the language seems to be archaic and making sure that you actually understand what is in the contract. Yeah. If we don't understand it, how can we advise our client to sign it? Yeah. And that's to me where plain language also becomes a matter of ethics to some extent, not just in a case where you don't understand a contract, but whatever we write should be clear enough that the people using it understand it. If we're giving a legal opinion to our client and it's written in a manner that they can't grasp, then have we fulfilled our duty of communicating effectively with them? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm thinking too about um, some of the tips that are in the book that are specific to contracts, because that it doesn't seem to be an area that um, is talked about a lot. I mean, people talk about it a lot as being not in contracts, not being in plain language, but then taking that next step and how can we improve the language in our contracts? So it, they are, it is clearer. Yeah, absolutely. I think contracts are sort of, you know, a good example of cases where we are reusing old documents and they have become completely filled with verbose legalese. So my book does go through a lot of steps ranging from the word choice, um, talking about writing with active verbs rather than a lot of passive nominalizations where you have verbs masquerading as nouns, um, getting to the point more quickly, um, not not having these, you know, 50 word sentences with multiple, um, you know, transitions, you know, you're, you know, exactly what I'm talking about, where again, you have to go back and read it a couple of times. But I think contract drafters are sometimes afraid to use short sentences. Um, and there's no law against writing in short sentences, it can be much clearer when you do that. 
Um, and I do also talk about document design. I talk about the use of the word shall, which is, I think, still controversial among those who spend a lot of time thinking about legal writing, um, but providing tips for ways you can, again, accomplish what you need to do um, in the clearest language possible. Yeah. So let's talk about the word shall. <laughs> <laughs> let's. Shall we? <laughs> It really gets people fired up, or at least it gets nerds fired up, <laughs> like me. <laughs> yeah. So what are your thoughts on it? So the way I was taught and what I still believe is that the word shall is only correctly used when you are imposing a mandatory duty on the subject of the sentence who must be a legal actor capable of acting. So if we say contracts shall be approved by the board, that doesn't work because in that sentence, contracts shall be approved by the board. Contract is not a legal actor. A contract does not have a duty to be approved. A contract cannot have a duty to do anything. It is not an actor. Um, so if you tried to rewrite that and say, the board shall approve all contracts, I have a problem with that too. Because then the suggestion is, the board has a mandatory obligation to approve all contracts. And that would seem to take away their discretion to decide whether to approve a contract. So that's where you kind of get into some messiness with that word. So I think shall can be used correctly to say tenants shall pay rent on the first day of the month, right? Where you're very clearly imposing a duty um, and we're probably not going to run into an ambiguity with that kind of situation. You wouldn't want to just say rent shall be paid because that doesn't actually put the duty on anybody, right? That's a passive sentence. Um, so going back to, you know, contracts shall be approved by the board. Another way to write that, and I, I wrote about this on LinkedIn earlier this week, actually, would be perhaps, you know, all contracts, I can't remember how exactly I rewrote it there now, I should have pulled it up in front of me, but, you know, a contract is valid, valid only with board approval or something like that, where what you're trying to communicate is that if you have a contract out there that hasn't been approved by the board, then that's not binding. So you've got that's what you need to communicate and saying contracts shall be approved doesn't necessarily do that. Um, so you can get into all kinds of nuances on that. Um, another one that's interesting to me, since I do a lot of municipal work representing local governments, is uh, a, a, another case I also recently wrote about on LinkedIn out of the city of Chicago, where an ordinance provided that a certain type of parking ticket or notice shall include certain things. So of course, since there's a case on it, it didn't include those things. And the argument was, well, shall is mandatory. So the notice parking violation is not valid because it did not include these things in the notice. And the court found that was not the case, that it wasn't a matter of shall being mandatory versus permissive, but of rather the shall there was just directory. It was directing the way it should be done, but did not actually go to the validity of the notice. So again, I think you can draft things in a way that avoid those issues so that you don't have a case on what shall means in certain situations. And I think shall um, is, you know, become a bit outdated just in terms of our goals for plain language. Often it could be eliminated and fewer words can be included to mean the same thing. And I love how just focusing on the one word applies so many of the principles that you had articulated you know, you're writing in the act, more in the active voice. Your sentence is going to be shorter. Um, it's certainly going to be clearer. It just seems like such a simple thing, but it just affects so much. 
It does. And writing in the present tense, which I also advocate, particularly in rulemaking documents, it's not that the fine shall be $500. It's that the fine is $500 because at the time you're imposing the fine, it is $500. So it's not, a you know, a, it doesn't first, the fine doesn't have a duty to be $500. It just is $500. And that's easier uh, to understand as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that actually brings up, just as you're talking, it brings up another point um, that I see often is when things that don't think, feel, or the inanimate things are given sort of animate qualities. Right. Like, and so that also deals with that, that issue at the same time. So, uh, you know, some people might think, oh, what's the big deal about one word? Like, why can't you just replace shall with must when it's appropriate? Um, but no, again, critical thinking. What is it exactly that I want to say? That's right. Sometimes must might be a perfectly appropriate substitute. Sometimes you still have the same problems um, with it being in passive voice. So what are we trying to do? If you want to create an obligation for someone to do something, then draft it so that we know who that person is and what their obligation is. That's, um, you know, the basics for writing a rulemaking type of document. Yeah. And I think another um, word that comes up when we think about shallow, we talk about shallow is the word may. Yeah. Right. Does may mean might? Does may mean discretion? What does may mean? If it says the court, yeah, there's there's a lot that can go into that. You can go down a, a wonderful rabbit hole of case law on that as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But just, you know, to get the idea across that every word matters and, you know, you have to think about you know, which word you use in what context and how it could be interpreted. Yeah. And to try to avoid ambiguity at all costs, I think is. That's right. That is the key, because if we've created a document that um, causes ambiguity, then we haven't served our client in the best way. Absolutely. And then, I mean, it may be fine today, but 10 years from now, something happens. And so that contract gets, you know, um, opened once again, and the courts get into interpreting it. Yeah, we know too many cases like that. Uh, That's, right. That's why we have case law to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. I'm trying to think of some other things in the uh, in the book that were specific to contracts. A lot of them were uh, particular words and word choices. There were certain ones that um, I think you said sort of words to kill. <laughs> words to kill. Absolutely. So I did have a few of those. And, you know, you use kill a little bit. The point of that isn't that these can never, ever be used under any circumstance, but rather that we need to be thoughtful about the words that we use and overusing them and then what they actually mean. You know, like the word some of them I have, like, you know, herein was one of them that's talked about in the book where there might be a, a case where it is appropriate, but a lot of times it winds up being ambiguous, right? Which herein what? Herein in this section of the contract, herein in this entire document, um, you know, things like that, where you're not being as precise as you think you are. And there are some cases that I talk about um, in the book that kind of speaks to that. It also is just sometimes unnecessary. I mean, apart from ambiguity, if you're writing a brief or you're writing a motion for summary judgment and you say plaintiff herein moves for summary judgment, well, obviously it's the plaintiff in this case. We're not talking about a plaintiff in a different case. So that's where you've got to go back with the red pen and strike the words um, that you don't need. We don't want to talk about pet peeves. 
The introductions to many briefs and pleadings are my pet peeve. Um, and it's funny because my assist, my legal assistant read my book and she said, oh, I love, she's like, you're always telling me to strike that stuff out of it. Like, That's right, I do, because we don't need this. You know, now, therefore, here comes this plaintiff here. And in this case, we have plaintiff moves for summary judgment. That's all that the court needs. And um, there are some cases I've shared on LinkedIn as well, where the courts have actually um, rewritten what parties have done. And there was one case in particular where it was, I think, a motion to extend the word count or to exceed the, or the page count, I think, for a brief. And the motion itself was so wordy that the judge said, you don't need extra pages. You just need to use fewer words. <laughs> Nobody wants to read something that is unnecessarily wordy. Yeah, yeah. And I'm happy to hear that the courts are, you know, are they're calling lawyers out on that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so many cases now where where we're hearing that. And I guess that's another I want to go back to some of the words words to kill, but um what came up just as you were saying that was the idea that um, you know, we want to use fewer words. We want to be more concise. Now, my understanding is that there's a difference between, you know, brief and concise. And I'm wondering what your views are on that. I think being concise to me sounds like more thought and care has gone into the word selection. And it may not necessarily be shorter, but it's saying what you're trying to say in the most um, efficient and clear way. Where brief might just mean short, right? I can be short and not be complete or clear. In fact, I could be very vague and ambiguous in something very brief. So to me, that's, that's how I would uh, view that difference. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And I, I know that a, a lot of um, people who are trying to implement the principles of plain language really focus in on the be short, be brief, thinking that that's what concise means. So that I love the way you made that distinction. Um, because, yeah, fewer words doesn't necessarily make it better. What are some tips that we might, you know, share with listeners to make that distinction? How can we focus on being more concise as opposed to just cutting words? Right. So I think actually, if you apply the basic principles, you will wind up with writing that is concise rather than just short. If you are writing in the active voice, if you are using verbs rather than the nominalization, and by that I mean, say that, you know, the board determined something. Don't say the board made a determination, right? If you make that made a determination, take that nominalization and make it a verb, you're making it shorter and more concise um, in one fell swoop. Try to write with shorter sentences um, because then you need fewer transition words and fewer reference, uh, referential type of words. Um, Look out for things. This kind of goes back to the words to kill like the word said and the word such, you know, all such of this, all, all said parties, things that we, that really don't add anything to the meaning. Um, it's pretty clear in almost all instances where that word is used, you can take it out and just put the or an, like a normal person article. Um, and it still makes perfect sense. Um, and it's often used in these kind of what I would say, like the, the reference phrases that you don't need if you just write in short sentences in the first place. So um, so the answer isn't really, there's not probably one trick for being concise versus brief. It's more the result you get when you apply all of the principles together. Yeah, 100% agree on that. And another thing that um, I found that uh, students and, and junior lawyers, well, all lawyers um, and judges <laughs> struggle with is trying to do it all in that first draft, thinking that all these things that we're talking about 
they have to embrace them. And then that first draft is going to come out perfectly. I wish. Right? No, no matter how much you practice, you always need to uh, ruthlessly edit your own work. Um, and I will often print something just because I think having the pen on it can be helpful in um, striking unnecessary verbiage or just saying things more clearly. If you have the ability or luxury of setting it aside for a short time and then coming back to it, it can be easier to see where you can trim words. Um, and, you know, a good page counter word count can help with that too. Man, I've had some some briefs, a reply brief, uh, for example, where you're limited to five pages. You become very picky about which words you use and how you phrase your sentences if you've got to keep it within a certain limit. And that's a good thing. So sometimes perhaps we ought to give ourselves limits so that we can um, focus on keeping it to what is absolutely essential in our writing. Yeah. Oh, I like that a lot. Giving yourself kind of a false page limit or, or word limit. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering in your firm, um, because you're so involved in mentoring as well, and you have this passion for legal writing, have you sort of set up anything like writing buddies or anything like that to help yeah, sort of we do. we do. We do um, associate ongoing education training. So we have different topics and each um, partner or shareholder um, in the firm has a topic that they present on that's within their area of expertise. So of course, mine has been legal writing. And we've done that both in larger and small groups. And I'll actually have associates provide me with some of their legal writing and go through and work with them, not just redline it and send it back, but actually work with them to talk about the choices that they've made and how their writing could be more clear and concise. Um, and I also give presentations on these types of plain language skills so that um, so that people can start implementing that right away. And that's something that I'm uh, actually hoping in the future to share with other lawyers at other firms as well, because I really think our entire practice, the entire profession benefits as we have more clear legal writing out there. Absolutely. And um, just from for lawyers to know from the beginning how important writing is and how important clear writing is. And I think that message coming from the top, from one of the partners or, or as you call uh, shareholders, yeah, the idea that, um, you know, someone can sit down with you and go over your writing. It's like it's a, you know, it's a collaboration. It's a conversation as opposed to something coming back just with the edits done and you know, the, the new lawyer thinking, okay, well, now I have to write this way because this particular lawyer doesn't like this word or this sentence structure or whatever it is. Uh, so I just love the fact that you're taking time to sit down with associates and and talk about it. And and that goes back to one of the principles of plain language that you mentioned at the outset, sort of how are readers reacting to it? So you are kind of giving the new lawyer the reader reaction to what they've written. And I think that interactive way of doing it is important in a lot of areas of mentorship. So, um, you know, I think that as lawyers are coming into the profession now, they are expecting, and I think rightfully so, more of that one-on-one -on -one coaching and training. And I think it's the most effective way to do things. Certainly, I think that new lawyers will learn better from having somebody look at their work, sit down with them, explain how um, how writing can be clearer or, you know, obviously the substance of the law as well, rather than perhaps the older model of basically you turn something into a, to a partner and you never see it again. It's hard to learn from that. Or even you can learn certainly from a red line version, but I think taking that extra step as mentors, as attorneys with more experience, we can help 
new lawyers grow professionally even faster, become better writers, but more effective advocates um, at a much earlier stage in their career. Yeah. And what do you think of getting um, like pairing up associates and getting them to sort of review each other's work and do a little bit of that? Obviously, they don't have the expertise that you do or some of the senior lawyers do. But what do you think of that? Yeah, I think it's great because then you've got that other fresh set of eyes. So in our firm, we do have a buddy program where each newer associate is assigned another um, associate in the firm to be that sort of person to ask all sorts of questions to. But that includes, you know, looking over those memos, especially earlier on to say, hey, you know, can you be another set of eyes for me? Um, and that covers a lot of things, right? Because one thing you said that jumped out at me is right, which is different people do write differently. And as somebody, if you work in a firm or you work in a, you know, in-house position where you have multiple people reading your work, to some extent, you do have to figure out what they are looking for in their product or what a certain litigator likes in their pleadings. But I still think those plain language principles still apply across the board. So you can accommodate style, you can look at the way people do things, but you can still write clearly and concisely with the things you have control over. Yeah. And I've seen um, recently, maybe it's um, not so recent in the States, Canada tends to be a little further behind when it comes to sort of legal writing instruction and just um, generally uh, legal writing training. But I've seen ads for uh, in-house legal writing coaches. Is that something you're familiar with? It makes sense to me um, because your your effectiveness is going to improve as you write better. So I think it's to the advantage of any corporation to make sure their in-house attorneys are good writers because they as well have to know their audience. And if they are writing to you know somebody in the you know profitability part of the business and they need to make sure they're being clear with the law, getting to that conclusion, you know, one thing we talk about with new lawyers as well is getting to a conclusion. Mm -hmm. um, even when it's probably not black and white, because if the answers were easy, no one would need a lawyer, but explaining what the risks are, what factors need to be considered, or what factors I should say the clients need to consider when making a decision and reaching a recommendation so that the reader actually has a takeaway from it, rather than providing a research memo that says, well, it could go this way or it could go that way, have a nice day, um, which <laughs> isn't as valuable a work product at the end. Um, so that's that's true in a firm. And I think that's especially true in an in-house environment where you've got to give um, very smart, sophisticated, talented business leaders who are not lawyers an answer to a legal question that also answers a business question. Um, so I, I definitely would think having good legal writers in those positions would be especially important. Yeah. And I mean, you know, having taught at uh, a law school for a number of years and that idea of looking at the memo, getting students to come to a conclusion, that was so challenging. And <laughs> I, th I think it also goes back to the point about critical thinking, because if they could put themselves in the position of the client and say, okay, well, what would you want as a client? You'd want an answer to that right. question. Right. So, if I ask my accountant a question, I want an answer. You know, I don't want to hear the, <laughs> well, some, you know, it could go this way or that way. I want to know what I should do. And that's exactly the case when our clients come to us for legal advice as well. Yeah. Yeah. Or to see, you know, this case said this, this case said that, and then expect the reader kind of to understand the connection between the cases and why they're relevant. <laughs> right. And that's why I recommend, especially in those client facing documents to put the conclusion up front. So we have, you know, a short synopsis of the question. Here's the short answer. 
So then when the reader is going through that, they are doing so in the context of kind of knowing where it's going, especially if they're a reader who's not as familiar with case law um, and might not uh, be able to quickly discern why parts of a case are relevant or why a certain rule of law would apply. But having that up front um, gives them what they need. And then you still obviously have all of the legal analysis that backs up that decision. And it gives them a choice. They could read it or not read it. Like, also that I've done, <laughs> I've done even in emails to clients, I'll do short answer, long answer. So at the top, you ask this short answer, I put it in bold font, short answer, this, and then long answer. And then I still, I still break it up and make it very readable, but it's the much more detailed legal analysis that is below. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of an acronym that I saw recently. I can't remember exactly what it was because to- so many letters, but it was basically too long, didn't read. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I I haven't gone as far as actually using that in, but I've considered it because that really is what it is, right? It's um, it's here. Here's here's what you really need to know, and sometimes that might be you can do this, but there's a risk, right? And let's talk about what that risk is. And now ultimately, you're the client; it's your decision. But here's here's the risk. Here's how likely we think that is to happen, right? A very high chance or a pretty remote risk. We're equipping you with the information you need in a way you can understand, and that's where the clear writing comes into play, in a way where you know the risk because we've explained it in language that you get the first time you read it, and you can make a decision. And I love that word risk because lawyers really are in sort of the risk assessment business. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So, I mean, so many interesting um topics come up as sort of sub or as related topics when we talk about writing and who thinks who can think that writing is boring to talk about right that's what I said it's fun and, and it is so you're exactly right though it's it's intricately connected to everything we're doing it's not like I mean we talk about legal writing and clear writing as though it's in some vacuum or silo and that's not the case at all obviously it's it's interwoven with everything we do on a daily basis with every email we send to a client um, to a colleague, um, to everything we draft, it comes up. I mean, we 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 write. It's what we do. We talk as well, and plain language applies to that too, for that matter. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Um, I think people are give us more license when we're speaking to make sort of grammatical mistakes, and you know, our sentences aren't as well constructed as they we hope sure. they are when we're we're writing. But uh, absolutely, I mean, yeah, the words are, are the tools of our trade. Uh, whether we're articulating them orally or in writing. Yeah, so I'm just trying to think of some of the other things that um, jumped out at me in uh, in your book that would be useful to sort of share with listeners. I mean, you have so many tips, um, but one thing that sort of I thought was a corollary of the um, idea of critical thinking was your suggestion that you always start with the statute when you're doing yes. your analysis. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. And this comes from a time I was in court as a younger lawyer and an attorney uh, got up and just started talking about kind of dove into the analysis part. Right. And, and, the, and the judge very respectfully just stopped him, said, counselor, start with the statute. You know, what is your authority for any of this? What you know, really, what universe are we in here? Um, and that kind of stuck with me that when we have that finding authority, which often will be a statute or or a court rule or whatever we're dealing with, to lay out that framework first, because everything is going to flow from that. If you have cases interpreting the statute, we still need to start with the statute first. Um, You know, other secondary authority, that's lovely, but start with the statute. And it's kind of a a wide-arching 
organizational tip, right? We're kind of going back to basics, but say, you know, here's, here's your law. Let's have a clear understanding of that before we start talking about our facts and the analysis and why the judge should rule in our favor. Yeah. And, and also speaking, sort of building on the idea of as an organizational tool, if the statute, um, you know, there are two conditions or two requirements, then you know that the, st- the way you structure your analysis going forward is going to deal with one and then the other. So, exactly. yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, I just think that's such, like a, it seems like a small point, but it just finds its, creeps, it finds its way into so many of the documents that we write. And so much of what we do as lawyers is start right. with that, you know, that foundation, that framework. Especially when we dive in, you know, we become experts in these little tiny areas of the law in our case in particular, and we know every nuance and we know all the nitty gritties, but we have to realize when we're drafting something, our reader often will be getting their first introduction to it. So we need to put it in the big picture context. What are the rules of the game here? What are we talking about before we can really get into those? And and you see that sometimes you see a brief that starts with a presumption that the reader already knows all of the arguments. And and that's not the case. Um, So keep it, keep it with that focus and also then keeping it simple as well. Um, and that's when I'm writing, especially in brief writing, always trying to keep it simple. Again, that's not dumbing it down. That's not ignoring any of the complexities of the argument, but saying, you know, this is what this case is about. And these are the things that are at issue and the things that are not. This is what matters. I explain what matters for us to say, here's all the stuff the other person was talking about. <laughs> here's why they don't matter. Um, but putting that framework rather than kind of launching in the middle of the argument, which I see quite often. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it, it shows a much higher level of thinking. If someone is able to structure the document that way, it shows that, yeah, they've been able to think about it in a very organized way. Um, and then I, I guess that's something too that would, um, you know, come in the editing process. It's not something that necessarily like that we think like that naturally. <laughs> Yeah, I think um, you don't have to write it in order. I don't always, I never write briefs in order. I never start with the introduction. I, you know, that's, that comes last, in my opinion, because I can't write the introduction until I know everything that's going to be in the rest of the brief. But I think you're right in that editing process. Um, and I always, especially I write a lot of appellate briefs. So we have a table of contents and I will read the table of contents and make sure that those point headings all flow and make a logical, concise argument, and then make sure that what's under those point headings is actually reflected by that point heading. Because we've all been there, right? Where a point heading says, you know, there is no genuine issue of material fact, and then we read it, and it has nothing to do with whether there is a genuine issue of material fact, and we're left wondering where where things went astray. Um, so that that's all part of good editing and being a critical reader of your own writing, which is hard. Um, it, sometimes you just want to finish writing it and put it away or, or realistically, sometimes you're finishing it, you know, closer than the deadline than maybe you should. So it's a good reminder as well to build in that time to be able to go back through it critically or to have somebody else go through it critically as well to find not just errors, not just grammatical and spelling errors, but to find problems with the structural organization. So those are not quick fixes. So you've got to leave yourself enough time to restructure things as needed. Um, And that all is part of this clear writing organization and logical flow of arguments and ideas is as essential to it as all of the wordiness and words to kill and all of that. Yeah. And that's 
makes so many great points. But one that just jumped out at me right now is that this is the first time you mentioned the word grammar. Like we've had this whole discussion, <laughs> right? <laughs> whole discussion. Not once have we talked about commas or periods or other grammatical principles. Um, sure. So I'd like that to be a message that people take away from this as well, that plain language really has, I mean, yes, grammar is important, but it's so much, so, it's so much, so much more, right. And I do have a, some grammar stuff in there for the fellow grammar nerds um, in the book, but, but you're right. That's just a small part of the overall picture of clear writing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, well, I mean, I don't know about you, but I could talk about this forever. I'm hoping that our listeners are feeling ener- as energized as I am about the discussion. But, um, you know, maybe we'll have to come back for get you back for part two. But uh, love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just wondering at this point, Laura, if there's anything that you think that we didn't touch on that would be useful to pass on to listeners. No, I think we covered it. I would love if your listeners would follow me on LinkedIn. That's where I'm most active in sharing tips on clear legal writing and talking about interesting new cases. Please come leave a comment. A lot of the uh, engaging conversations happen in the comments. I'm always learning things. Um, If you write about plain writing, send me a message. I'd love to follow you. I've, again, just learned so much from others on that platform as well. Fantastic. Fantastic. And how can, how can listeners find your book? Oh, thank you. That's a great question. It is on Amazon. It is the plain language practice. Um, So if you search it, it should come up or search my name, Laura Genovich. Um, I'd be honored if you'd read it and leave a review or send me a message directly. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Laura. It was such a delight speaking with you. And uh, yeah, here's hoping we get you back for part two. Thanks so much for your time, Shelley. Thanks for joining me today on the XL Legal Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'm always looking for topic and guest ideas. So if you have any suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you at xllegal.com. That's E-X-E-L-L-E-G-A-L.com.